right. Well, we are going to continue our series called Safe Distance, as you just saw. Uh, one last thing to let you know about, though, and this was a part of, if you took the little packet that was handed on the way in, um, we are doing a series starting in February called First Comes Love. We ta- we're going to be tackling um, sex and love and dating and marriage. And so um, if you would grab one of those invite cards, um, that affects all of us, no matter what your relationship status is uh, on social media, no matter how many times you swiped right or been rejected. Uh, it doesn't matter uh, where you're at, no matter how long you've been married, whether you're single, newly single, it, doesn't, we're all, it affects us all. And so uh, would you grab one or two of those and invite somebody uh, to come along and check out our series starting in February um, as uh, we kick off that series on the very first Sunday. So uh, if you're just joining us, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been in this conversation talking about how complicated and challenging it is uh, for us to stay close and connected with the people that we love the most. And, and maybe more importantly, if you're a follower of Jesus, really how complicated and challenging it can be to stay close and connected to God. And, and, and that's a problem because, uh, you know, this, in your life this year, for better or for worse, yeah, it will be driven by your core relationships, whether it's if, if you're married with your spouse or your kids, or the relationship with your parents, friends, and certainly your relationship with God. And, and when it comes to us and God, the problem really isn't on his end, right? It's on our end. He's not the emotionally unstable one. We, we are, right? He's not the one carrying around a truckload of relational baggage. We are. Because we all inherit kind of a, a set of rules and roles from our families of origin that, that are like an operating system on a computer in our lives. They're running in the background and they're driving and sort of dictating how everything in our lives works or at least how our relationships work. And that operating system causes us to, do, to adopt a particular attachment style, which is just a shorthand way of describing the way that you and I go about making and keeping connections with other people. Now, pretty much all of us, and this is something we've talked about the last couple of weeks, and again, if you haven't been here, go back and listen to the last couple of weeks. I promise you'll get something out of it. Uh, but pretty much all of us fall into one somewhere in one of three insecure or unhealthy attachment styles. And, and if you're not sure like what that even means or what that looks like or how to figure that out, um, we have this short little half sheet of paper. You can pick it up at the Connect counter um, and you can take this quick little quiz and it, it'll give you an idea of what that is and what that means. And then the, um, we started last week and kind of tackling each of the three uh, unhealthy style. So you can go back and kind of figure out which week you were on. Uh, but the great thing is, is that we're all sort of a mixture of all of them. And so no matter what you're like, no matter what you experience, no matter what, you know, what your answers are on that quiz, um, you're going to be able to find something and grab onto something out of every single week. Because last week we kind of talked about and tackled the idea of people who are, are like me, who have kind of a sensitive or anxious attachment style. And today we're going to talk to, uh, about this idea of having a shutdown or people who have an avoidant attachment style. So I, I don't know, have you ever had a, a, a moment where you experienced secondhand or like vicarious embarrassment for someone else? Like where, where somebody was doing something cringy or saying something cringy in public and it felt like you were the one who was doing it or saying it, like you were just so overwhelmed with embarrassment for them. And it can be around almost anything. Uh, a few years ago, um, I was, uh, my, Hansi and I, my wife, we went to uh, a funeral and it was at this Greek Orthodox church that we'd never been to. And, and it was a big, a big old sanctuary, probably, you know, this size, it was a good size room. And, um, and, and, but when you, 
along one side of the sanctuary. It's like that whole wall on the outside wall was just completely glass. And, and there were about five sets of glass doors all along that wall. And that's where the parking lot was and people would park, but the entrance was around the front. And so we were all in there and, and it was packed and I was on this side of the room. And, and as the funeral got going, this lady from our church arrived just a little bit late and the funeral just started and she walked up and pulled on that first set of glass doors and all those glass doors were locked, but she didn't know. And it was a glass, and, and it was the sun's, it was glaring. She couldn't see inside, but everybody was looking at her. And she walked up and went, <laughs> and they're not open. And she walked a little bit farther and went to the next set. <laughs> and this funeral's going on and everybody's just like looking over there, watching her walk all the way down. And I was just like, oh my gosh. I could go rescue her, but it's kind of far away. And then I'd be sucked into her situation and I don't want people looking at me. Has that ever happened to you? Or, or have, you been, uh, have you ever had a moment where, where someone was being like really, really emotional, right? They, they weren't being fake. Their emotions were real, but it, it just seemed really dramatic or disproportional to the moment, maybe even out of place. And, and so things got really intense and awkward for everybody else around them because people just started looking for a way out and like, how do I get out of this situation? This is really awkward and weird. When, when I was a teenager, actually when I graduated high school, I was um, interning at a large church that I grew up at. And, <clears throat> and, and there was a group of us standing around with one of the pastors after the service. And we were talking about where we were gonna go uh, for lunch. And, and he was like, hey, why don't you guys all come over to our house and we'll have lunch and we'll watch the game. And right then his wife walked up and she was just like, but I have school. And they got in this like really weird, like fight right in front of everybody. And then she just started like crying. And then like, he was super insensitive to it and was like, now look at what you're doing. Everybody feels awkward. Why are you crying? Like right in the middle, everybody's like, oh my gosh, it was kind of awkward before. But now that you said that, it's really awkward. Has that ever happened to you? Or you're just like, I, I need to get out of here. Like, we don't need to go to your house. We don't even want to ever see you again because we're just totally embarrassed, right? Well, that experience is kind of a small window into the life of somebody who has a, a shutdown attachment style where well, only it's with everything, right? Where they're trying to escape or avoid getting trapped in the awkwardness and the discomfort of a needy sort of emotional exchange or, or even what just feels like what might be a needy emotional exchange. I mean, at the end of the day, why can't people just calm down and take care of themselves, right? Now, if you have somebody in your life who's got a shut down attachment style, it can often feel like they're distant or disengaged, maybe even detached. Uh, it, it feels impossible at times to get a read on what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And, and that's because they live from the belief that closeness is the result of just staying calm and staying in control. And you protect yourself and those you love by ignoring your feelings or avoiding your feelings, especially all the negative ones, the ones that are really strong. And, and so what do we do instead? Right? We look for something to do so that we don't have to feel. Right? We demonstrate our love for the people in our lives by showing them that we're strong enough to not really need anything from them. Right? We're very careful that we don't share too much. We, we focus on solving problems, not sharing feelings. I mean, that's a waste of time. That doesn't fix anything. That doesn't help anybody if I just share my feelings. We gotta solve the problem. Right? We, we tend to express what we think as objective and factual rather than subjective and feeling. Now, if that sounds like, all that sounds like it might make it kind of hard for people to get or feel close to you, if that's you, it, well, it does. But 
For people who have this kind of attachment style, that's not the intention. It's actually the opposite. It's a survival tactic that they developed, a way of sort of insulating themselves and and each other from hurt and heartbreak. See, lots of us know the experience of being accepted and approved for what we do, but far fewer of us know the experience of being loved simply for who we are. If you have a shutdown attachment style, it's because somewhere along the way, you learned that showing emotions is unacceptable. It just makes people uncomfortable. There's no point to it. And and some of us got those messages in really overt and obvious ways, right? Where people in our family or people that were responsible for us to care for us, they told us things like, you know, like suck it up or get over it and stop being such a baby. If you're gonna make a scene, go to your room. If you don't stop, I'll give you something to cry about. Anybody, anybody's dad ever say that to them? I'm happy to report I have said that to my kids, right? Um, or maybe not happy to report. Don't be dramatic. Nobody likes a drama queen, right? Or, or maybe in your family, it wasn't so overt. It was a little more subtle where difficult and negative emotions weren't punished, but they were minimized and diminished with just this forced positivity. It's like, oh, don't cry. You're okay. Let's go get some ice cream. Don't think about that. I know, I'll make your favorite meal for dinner. We don't need to dwell on that or even think about it. Just let it go. Let's do something fun. I mean, it's not that bad. Look at the bright side, right? And there are moments where that's great, right? That's a great perspective. But if every time you encounter something negative, every time you're having a bad day, that's what gets pushed on you, right? You start to learn to avoid your feelings because sharing them makes people avoid you. So we shut down our emotions and we hold back our feelings, not to push people away, but so that we can keep people close. So we hold in and push down anything dark and negative, all the pain and fear and disappointment, sadness, right? And after a while, we don't even have to try to do it. We just do it automatically. We don't even really know that we're doing it, right? It's just, we wall off that part of us. Now, obviously, all of those things aren't really always healthy or helpful in relationships, but people with a shutdown attachment have strengths that the rest of us naturally don't have. So my, uh, I shared last week that I was kind of that anxious attachment style. Um, we're going to talk, my wife took it and, and I'm not going to share a bunch of her story because it's her story, but, but she's the attachment style we're going to talk about next week. But she's kind of a mixture of some of these things. And she's definitely this part of, of she's got all these strengths of what a shutdown attachment person has because shutdown people are usually compulsively productive, right? They are the doers among us. When they get involved in something, they're gonna find a way that it could be better and they aren't afraid to put in the work to make it happen. They're the grinders. They get a lot done and they don't need really hardly any help or support to get it done. When it comes to a job or a task list, they don't need inspiration or motivation. They just get it done. In their minds, it's gotta be done, so it might as well be me. So I'm just gonna go do it. They're initiators and not procrastinators. Now there's part of me that kind of identifies with this um, with this particular attachment style, but this is not that part because my wife is the initiator, but I am the procrastinator. And so that's why we've been happily married for 28 years because she likes to do things and I like not to do things. Uh, anybody married to their opposite? Yeah. Anybody with me? We're just like, why? why? Why do you have to do that right now? Is that gotta happen right now? So there's a lady in the New Testament who's actually kind of famous for being like this. And we obviously don't know enough about her to know her particular attachment style. This, these ideas obviously weren't even around back then. But there's a moment between her and her sister and Jesus that definitely has the feel of somebody who might be 
shut down. So check it out. It's in Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 38. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. So this story is such a great picture of just different personalities and then you throw Jesus into the mix and how he responds to those personalities. Have you ever had somebody show up to your house from out of town unannounced and decide they were gonna stay with you? Like, hey, surprise, we thought we'd visit you. We're gonna eat all your food and mess up your house. It'll be fun, right? So right out of the gate, there's that tension. Because Mary's stoked, woo, Jesus and the fellas are here. I mean, this 13 men just rolled into your house. And so Martha, but Martha's not as stoked. She's bitch, like she's stressed because there's stuff that's got to happen, right? If that group shows up at your house, there's some preparations that need to be made. So Mary sits down and she's just kind of glued to Jesus. She's eyes wide, hanging on every word, laughing and giggling at all the jokes and stories that they're telling. It's fantastic. But meanwhile, Martha is compulsively productive, She's cooking and cleaning and, and making preparations. Have you ever passive ag- aggressively like cleaned when you're mad, right? Where you're doing stuff right in front of people really loudly so that they get the hint. And you're just like slam that thing and move that over there. I was like, I didn't even know you could wash dishes that loudly, right? Or she's like, I just picture like she comes in the living room. They're all sitting there. Mary's sitting by Jesus. She's running a vacuum cleaner right next to him. Excuse me, I gotta get, she gets right in between Mary and Jesus. Nobody, nobody notices that I'm doing this. Nobody thinks that this needs to happen. Okay, she's running right over there. But it doesn't matter, right? Mary doesn't get the hint. I just think she's like, Martha, that thing's so loud. Could you go vacuum somewhere else? I can't even hear Jesus. Get out of here. And so at some point, Martha has enough and notice what she says and does. She comes to Jesus and she says, don't you care that she's left me to do all the work? Isn't it unfair, Jesus, that she just sits there while I do it all by myself? Now, what's interesting to me is that she doesn't use any feeling words at all. She doesn't say anything that I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed. She doesn't say any of that. Instead, she presents the situation to Jesus as black and white, right? It's objective, it's factual. There's no feelings because feelings are subjective, right? So she, she basically comes to Jesus like, look, we all clearly see what's going on here, Jesus. It's obvious what is right and good and fair. You need to tell her to get up and help. And Jesus looks at her. And he's the one that actually introduces and describes what she's feeling, right? He says, I can see that you are worried, you're frustrated, that you're upset. And if she's truly a shut down, like attachment person, I just imagine her thinking like, she would just be like, look, I can't help it if I have high standards, all right, for my house. This isn't about my feelings. This is about facts. I'm not worried or upset. I'm a little bit bothered, but that's different. 
Because people with a shutdown attachment, they do stuff so they don't have to feel stuff. That attachment we talked about last week, those sensitive or anxious people, they like to connect with people face to face. The shutdown prefer to connect with people shoulder to shoulder. Hey, we'll hang out. We'll connect by getting some stuff done. You want to hang out with me? Come, I got a project that we can do together, right? And, and they don't intend it, but there's almost a callousness towards other people. The reason that they have that is because there's a callousness towards themselves. You're not actually really hiding what you're feeling because you don't really always know what you're feeling. So you just keep doing things so you don't have to feel things. I've actually been around people that tell themselves, well, I'm just not an emotions person. But the truth is you, you actually are. You just learn to ignore them or sweep them aside. And when you don't or you can't, you do what every good red-blooded American does. You numb them with food or drink or something a little bit more potent. It's difficult to, to make sense of or to know what to do with them, right? I just imagine Martha is frustrated, not only that she's doing the work, but she, she, she actually doesn't want to be doing what, what Mary's doing, right? Sitting in an emotional exchange, no thanks. Not only do I not want to do that, I think it's a waste of your time for you to do that. And if there's stuff that needs to be done, not only is it a waste of time, it's selfish and wrong. Notice how she moralized the whole thing. Do you really think it's fair? Isn't it wrong for her to be doing that when I'm over here doing this? But Jesus says something really, really interesting to her, right? He tells her that being with is actually better than doing for. And she was just like, what? Right, he basically says like all the details, all the doing, that's all good stuff, right? There's nothing wrong with that, but there's actually something better. He uses the word better. See, I think one of the things that I think makes this story so powerful is is this idea that we've been talking about all month long is is that this stuff is super helpful, right? When we're just talking about our relationship with Jesus, our, our relationship with one another. But here's the thing, how we attach to others is actually how we attach to God. So this is where the rubber actually begins to meet the road. And in this story, that is so clear and obvious because Martha isn't just talking to just anybody. This is Jesus. This is God with skin on. And she believed that that's who he was. She believed that he was the Messiah. And yet when she's talking to God, she still hedges and doesn't actually share her feelings. She doesn't disclose any of that. That's because the shutdown attachment is convinced that emotions and vulnerability actually end up sabotaging relationships, including our relationship with God. After all, think about it. He wants us to have faith, right? The Bible even says that he rewards our faith. So if I just truly believe in God's promises, I wouldn't feel this way. So the fear and sadness and doubt and anger, they're just proof that I don't have enough faith. And on top of that, he wants us to do what's right, right? And that doesn't have anything to do with how I'm feeling, right? So there's these moments where we feel like, man, I'm mad and I know that I'm not supposed to be mad. So I'm just gonna ignore or push down my anger and pretend to understand why you did that thing and pretend like I'm just, I'm okay. It doesn't make me, you can't make me angry. So often when we have a shutdown attachment style, we end up treating God like he's this cosmic boss 
rather than a loving father. And he's got a lot of pressing responsibilities and a lot of pressing deadlines. And so it's our job just to get to work and to do our best and to keep our hurt and our failure and our doubts and all of that to ourselves. Have you ever, um, have you ever been around somebody whose faith seemed like it was focused on what they were doing for God? Like they, they mentioned what God has done for them, but the real conversation, the real badge on their shoulder is what they do for God. Yeah, yeah, God, di- yeah, Jesus died for me, but man, I am busy doing stuff for God. And you get in a conversation with them and you're just like, oh yeah, I, I read this verse this morning and they're like, that's awesome. I've read the Bible to cover to cover 86 times. And you're just like, all right, it's not a competition. But then they have a verse that they quote that like, makes them feel like it's a competition. They're like, oh yeah, well in Corinthians, Paul said like in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. So run, so you're like the one to get the prize. And you're just like, you are a psycho, right? Or have you ever been in, in, a, in a prayer group like where people are praying and people are going around the room and, and, and somebody does what I call the prayer shot block, right? Where somebody's praying for somebody else and they're like, God, they're just really struggling financially. Please do a miracle and help them. And then the shutdown person, they come up and block that prayer. And they're just like, yes, Lord. And may the miracle be that they stop sitting around and being so lazy and they get up and they go get a job because we all know that you help those that help themselves. And even though that's not in the Bible, Lord, we know that it should be. And we know you meant to put it in there. See, we've all done what Martha did, where we have moments where we tell God what he should be doing, especially when it comes to other people. And I think part of why we do all of this stuff is because we have a shutdown attachment to God, where our closeness for, with him is measured by us our ability to stay calm and in control and get stuff done and just believe in faith and have all the right check all the right boxes, right? Because it's just easier to trust a system of beliefs than it is to trust a living God who personally engages with us. And so we focus all our attention on facts and information about God. It's like, if I just know enough truth, I really won't need people. And then the truth sets you free. And who doesn't want to be free? So, But instead of engaging with God about our emotions, we use the scriptures to dismiss them or pretend that they don't exist. And unfortunately, a lot of our church experiences don't help, right? Because in a lot of places, like in the family of God, success is defined as being faithful to his purpose and plan for your life. And feelings are almost demonized as the enemy of truth. But that's not at all what we see in the scriptures. I mean, you could pick a thousand different verses, but for instance, in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, The Apostle Paul wrote these words, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And we try to spiritualize that. That means something spiritual. No, he's actually just talking about emotions. He's talking about connection. He's talking about relationship. So we read that and we're like, wait, so just sit with people in their feelings and feel them with them? Yeah. Where did they get that? Where did he get that? Why did he write that? Well, he got it from Jesus. As you read the gospels, Jesus, there's all over in the stories of the gospels, he's partying and laughing with people at weddings and celebrations, but he also shows up and weeps with people when they're broken and hurting. 
In fact, even when, with these two sisters, when their brother dies, Jesus shows up and they're angry at him and they come out and he wouldn't have died if you'd have been here. And Jesus begins to weep because they're so broken. And he's weeping not because Lazarus is dead, because he knows in just about a minute he's gonna be back, back alive. He's weeping simply because the people he loves and cares about are broken and hurting. See, God doesn't shame us for having feelings. In fact, he's the one that gave them to you. Like all of them, the good ones, the bad ones, the ugly ones. And he wants us to share them with him. All of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. See, you are deeply loved by God for who you are, not for what you do. God doesn't just want your best. He wants all of you. And the thing is, like, you are a human being made in God's image and likeness. And part of that likeness is to feel because God thinks, and so you think. God wills, you will. God feels, you feel. To feel is to be human. And to minimize or deny what we feel actually distorts what it means to bear the image of God. When we deny our pain, when we deny our losses and our feelings year after year after year, we actually become less and less human, less and less like our creator. The scriptures are full of people expressing anger and sorrow and loneliness and frustration and despair. Sometimes not just to God, many times towards God. They weren't the only ones, but Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Job, David, they all vented to God because he didn't do things the way that they, shot, they, they, shot, they thought he should. Almost half of the Psalms contain laments, complaints, heartbreak, suffering. And that means if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're in the room and you've been following Jesus for any length of time, right? And you're one of those people that you're just always praying, right? Like you're, you're, you got that I'm too blessed to be stressed thing, which don't say that, by the way. If you're always doing that and never, if you're always praising and never lamenting, you're faking it. You're not being real because that's not how life works. That's not how life is. I think God included all of that stuff in the scriptures for us because he's a good father and he's modeling what healthy parents do. He's making room for the negative emotions of those who are close to him, even if they're directed at him. Because the truth is, is that real connection comes from sharing what we truly feel, not what we think we should feel. Right? For some reason, somehow we got into church and we, it, it, it becomes all about what's right and not what's actually real. And so when we share something, we share the right thing and not the real thing. But so often that right thing is not, it's not what's true about us. There's no connection between you and other people. There's no connection between you and God without vulnerability. It's true of you and me. It's true of me and God. And if you're a shutdown person in this room right now, you're just like almost borderline panic attack because you're just like, no, no vulnerability. Jeremiah 29, 13, this is God speaking. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. See, your heart 
especially in the Jewish culture, your heart is your core, it's your inner world. Yes, it's your thoughts, yes, it's your will, but it's also your emotions and your desires and your passions. And God says that there's a way that we find and connect with him when we actually seek him with our whole heart. Now there's all kinds of different aspects to wholeheartedness, but whatever else it entails, at its core is vulnerability. See, if you're someone who struggles with this, the truth is your ability to love others, your ability to love yourself, and your ability to even love and connect with God will be diminished and limited to the degree that you are unable to feel your feelings and express your emotions. How could it not? You cannot bring your whole self to God without bringing your whole heart to him. And that takes slowing down. That takes stepping away from all the doing. That takes actually being real with yourself and with him. In Psalm 46, verse 10, God says these words, Be still and know that I am God. If you've been around church, you've probably heard that verse a thousand times. Be still and know that I'm God. We, we almost always only think of the being still part in terms of our physical movement. And it has application there for sure. But that's only part of it. Because what it really means is to cease striving, be still. To loosen your grip, be still. To let go, to lower your guard, to drop your defenses. That phrase, be still, literally actually means, could be translated in English, become helpless and know that I'm God. Why? Why would God say that? Because connection and closeness take vulnerability. So every week in this series, we kind of keep landing in the same spot. And that is not an accident. It's because whether you're a cynic or a skeptic or a believer when it comes to Christianity, the only thing that we all need, the only thing that will change your life, the only thing that will change my life is a real encounter with Jesus. A, a strong, healthy connection, closeness with your heavenly father. And, and no matter who you are or what your attachment style, but especially if you're prone to being more shut down like we're talking today, the truth is, is that you, you can adopt practices that will actually reinforce that closeness is strengthened, not weakened, when you're vulnerable with God. Because we've said every week of this series, we don't change by learning new information. We change when we have new experiences. And so I'm gonna give you just a handful of like really practical things that you can actually begin to implement in your life if this is something that is a problem holding you back. And it's hard to see it as a problem, I know, if, you're, if you have this attachment style. Because you're, you're getting stuff done. But there is a way for you to actually begin to reinforce for yourself that closeness with God actually is strengthened when you're vulnerable, when you slow down. So here are a couple things. Number one, Memorize and reflect on scriptures or worship songs that are simply about God being with you. Don't, don't find the ones that are like the super 
We are, we are the champions, right? Find the ones that actually begin to speak into the darker places. Number two, make room for and express your true feelings by writing them down. One of the ways that I do this in my life, I've been doing it a long time, is I simply, there's probably about once a week, I'll sit down and I'll, instead of just praying a prayer, I'll sit down and I'll write it out. There's something very powerful that comes out of me when I decide to actually write down the things that I'm thinking and feeling. I have all kinds of, I do it actually now on my phone. I have all these notes on my phone that are simply prayers, thoughts, feelings. God, this is what I'm thinking. This is how I feel. I just need to say it to you. Number three, spend time around people who reflect this aspect of God, who are open and honest, who are non-judgmental. Four, look for someone to be with instead of something to do. That one's a hard one. Finally, take a moment. Think through your life. You can think of an experience where you were open, openly emotional, and it actually drew people to you instead of pushed them away. See, you actually need to have a conversation with yourself about like, hey, there have been times where I've been emotional and it didn't lead to disaster. See, because believe it or not, you've had experiences where people drew close to you. You're not so extra that everybody always runs away when you get emotional, especially not God. One of my favorite verses was written by Jesus' half-brother, James. He says this in James 4, verse 8. He says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. So much is lost when things get translated. We just get the phrase, come near. But the picture is that of extreme closeness, extreme connectedness. There's no distance. For the longest time, I always read this verse and thought, man, it's up to me to stay close to God. He's waiting on me. And God's kind of a diva. He plays hard to get. He wants to be pursued. And I don't, like if I don't prove that I want to be near him by making the first move, well, I guess we're not going to be close because he won't come near to me unless I come near to him. And part of the reason why I always had that fear, that thought process is because whenever I read that verse, like I always read it or see it or process it in the opposite, right? Like if I don't come near to God, he won't come near to me. But the truth is that's absolutely ridiculous because over and over and over again, God is the one who comes near. God is the one who initiates, not just in the scriptures because it's all over the scriptures, but in my own relationship, my own experience with him. He's the one that's always chasing us. He's the one that's always pursuing us. That's literally who Jesus is. See, I think what James is saying is this, is this God's going, I'm, I'm right here. And guess what? There's a place for you, specifically for you, right next to me. I, I have four kids. My youngest son, Kelton, is getting ready to turn eight. And when he's upset, he wants everybody to know it. And he wants to be left alone. A few weeks ago, he was mad at his brother. He was upset about something or he, was, he got in trouble and he was just like, 
just brows, just mad at the world. And he was having to sit over on the couch and I came over and I sat down next to him and I put my arm around him. And I was close to him, but he was just rigid and just, I'm not gonna break. You're not gonna break me, dad, is what it felt like. And I just started rubbing his head. Hey, buddy, how are you? Pulled him close to me and he was just like, the longer I talked to him, the more I rubbed his back, he started going, oh, that, oh yeah, right, right over there, right there. And within about a minute, he was nuzzled up, snuggled up next to me, and I had both my arms around him, telling him how much I love him. See, I, I think that, that's a pretty good picture, right? Because he was right next to me, but it wasn't until he let go. It wasn't until he was still. It wasn't until he leaned in. It wasn't until he was vulnerable that I could fully take him into my arms. See, that, that's God's heart for you. He's going, I'm right here. I'm right next to you. And you're just like, you won't break me. And God's whispering into your soul, holding you, reaching out to you. That is God's heart for you. Would you pray with me?